ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد So last time then in the previous lecture we were discussing some of the narrations encouraging seeking knowledge some of the ayat of the Quran some of the ahadith of the sunnah so we're going to carry on from that topic talking about seeking knowledge and some of the evidences that have been mentioned about seeking knowledge One of those ahadith is the hadith of Abu Musa عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال that the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said مثل ما بعثني الله به من الهدى والعلم كمثل الغيث الكثير أصاب أرضا فَكَانَ مِنْهَا نَقِيَّةً قَبِلَةِ الْمَاءِ فَأَنْبَتَتِ الْكَلَأِ وَالْعِشْبِ الْكَثِيرِ وَكَانَتْ مِنْهَا أَجَادِبَ أَمْسَكَتِ الْمَاءِ فَنَفَعَ اللَّهُ بِهَا النَّاسِ فَشَرِبُوا وَسَقُوا وَزَرَعُوا وَأَصَابَتْ مِنْهَا طَائِفَةً أُخْرَى إِنَّمَا هِيَ قيعان لا تمسك ماء ولا تنبت كلأ فذلك مثل من فقه في دين الله ونفعه ما بعثني الله به فعلم وعلمه ومثل من لم يرفع بذلك رأسا ولم يقبل هدى الله الذي أرسلت به In this narration the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said that the example the example of what allah has sent me with from guidance and knowledge the parable the example that can be made of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam being sent with the guidance and the knowledge is like the example of a land that rain fell upon the example of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam being sent with guidance and knowledge is like a land where rain a lot of rain fell upon So that land there were parts of it that were fertile so the rainwater the rainfall fell into that fertile land and it went into that fertile land and the vegetation and the greenery grew up 
And there was another section of the land, another section of the land that was much more solid, not moist and fertile, a bit more solid. So that area didn't soak in the water and the greenery didn't grow, but because it was a solid type of land, it held the water. The water collected on it and it became like a pool, a lake. The water collected within it. And so the people could still benefit from it. A collection of water, the animals can drink from it, the people can drink from it, they can take it and irrigate their crops, they can go and water their crops with it. And there was another part of the land that was barren, barren land, dead land. In that area, it did not hold the water. Barren dead land couldn't hold the water. Neither did the water soak into it. So no greenery or vegetation came out of it. The hadith carries on, but let's repeat up to that section again first. The Prophet ﷺ said, the example of what I have been sent with from guidance and knowledge is like a land where plentiful rain fell upon it. One portion of that land was fertile. So the water soaked into it and the greenery and the vegetation grew. And of course, everybody benefits from that. The humans and the animals, they graze on it, etc. And there was another part of that land, which was not fertile, but it was a type of ground that held the water. So the water collected within it, and the people and the animals still benefited from that. A drinking hole, and the people took water from it and watered their plants and their crops with it, and they drank from it, so still benefited. And there was another part of the land which was completely barren, dead land. It couldn't hold any water, neither would the water soak into uh, fertility, it wouldn't bring about any greenery or vegetation, dead land. Barren land. So that plentiful rain fell on that part of the land and no benefit came from it. No vegetation grew in that dead part of the land. Neither could it hold the water together for people and animals to come and benefit. Nothing. So three types of land were mentioned in the narration. And the different circumstances when the rain fell upon those areas of land. So then the Prophet ﷺ goes on to say, مَثَلُ مَنْ فَاقِهَا فِي دِينِ اللَّهِ وَنَفَعَهُ 
ما بعثني الله به فعلم وعلم that the first type of land as Sheikh bin Baz explained the narration saying that the first type of land which was the fertile land where the water soaked in and the greenery grew that is like the example of people who take that guidance and knowledge that the Prophet came with. They are fertile, they take that knowledge in. And they then benefit themselves and others with it. So they are like the fertile land that takes in the rainfall and benefits itself with the water in the ground, and then brings about the vegetation and benefits other people, that is like the people who take in the guidance and the knowledge that the Prophet ﷺ came with. So they learn it, and then they teach it. They learn it themselves, and they benefit other people with it too. That is like the fertile land, those kinds of people. The second land was the one where it wasn't as fertile as such, but it was good enough, the makeup of the land, where it could hold water together at least, and so people and animals could still benefit from that, even though no vegetation and growth occurred. That is like a slightly lower level of people, they still take the guidance and the knowledge of the Prophet ﷺ. Just like that land still took the water and held it, so these people still take in that knowledge and that guidance from the Prophet ﷺ and benefit from it, but not to the level of the people who are considered the fertile land kind of people. So a slightly lower level, but still benefiting, still taking the knowledge, still learning, still benefiting, but maybe not as high level as the top level. Then the third land was the barren land, the dead barren land where no benefit occurred from it. It could not take in the water, it did not take in the water, and so no vegetation grew, it couldn't even hold the water. That is like the example, as the Prophet says, وَمَثَلُ مَنْ لَمْ يَرْفَعْ بِذَلِكَ رَأْسًا وَلَمْ يَقْبَلْ هُدَى اللَّهِ الَّذِي أُرْسِلْتُ بِهِ That's the example of the one who doesn't even look at this guidance, and does not accept it, the guidance of Allah, that I have been sent with. Sheikh bin Baz, one of the greatest scholars of our time, of recent times, he mentioned, rahimahullah ta'ala, that the hadith highlights to you the different types of people when it comes to the guidance of the messenger. Some people are fertile, meaning like the fertile land, they take in that guidance, they learn it, and they teach it, benefit themselves and benefit others. Other people, they take it in and they benefit from it, but maybe not as high level as the first group. 
And the third level of people, the ones who ignore it and neglect it, and don't even look or take any consideration or pay attention to it. So they are like the barren and dead land that took no rainfall in and did not benefit anyone else. The narration is an encouragement and a warning at the same time. An encouragement for us all to strive to be like the fertile land, or at the least to be like the second type of land, at the least to be from those categories where we are taking this knowledge of the Prophet ﷺ, taking the guidance, benefiting from it, and then benefiting others if we're able also. And that is the fundamental reason from amongst them, from amongst the principal reasons for a person to seek knowledge is to remove ignorance from yourself. You seek knowledge to remove ignorance from yourself. A person doesn't know how to pray, he is upon ignorance there. So he goes and learns about the prayer, how to pray, what are the obligations, the arkan, the pillars of the prayer, what are the wajibat of the prayer, what are the sunnas of the prayer, the pillars, the obligations, the sunnas, goes and learns, so he can implement that guidance and remove the ignorance from himself. He can then be upon what the Prophet ﷺ said, صَلُّوا كَمَا رَأَيْتُمُونِ أُصَلِّي Pray as you see me pray. خُذُوا عَنِّي مَنَاسِكَكُمْ As the Prophet ﷺ said regarding Hajj, take the rights, the methods of doing Hajj from me. And they were all watching the Prophet ﷺ do the Hajj, how he does it. And they were learning from him. They would all watch him or they would pray with him. And they would learn how to pray. And they would watch him in other areas. And they would learn how to do those things. They would take in that knowledge and guidance to remove ignorance from themselves. And then the second part is to remove ignorance from others. Your family, your neighbors, your community, you learn about Tawheed and you learn about the dangers of shirk. So you teach your family about those things and you teach them about Tawheed and you warn them against shirk and your neighbors and your colleagues whomsoever you are able to do so with. So knowledge from that perspective is sought to remove ignorance from yourself and from others thereafter if you're able. 
So now, if a person thinks about what we've just said there, that you're seeking knowledge to remove ignorance from yourself, we are all ignorant before we learn that particular knowledge. Before any of us knew how to pray, there was a day we didn't know how to pray. Then when we were children or whenever it was, you then began to learn how to pray and you memorized Al-Fatiha, you memorized the other parts. So then you now became knowledgeable about how to pray. But before you learned those things, you were upon ignorance about it. For those who have done Hajj, the first time you did Hajj or Umrah, before you went, you know you sat there and you studied and you read the books and you tried to work out how it's done properly. Because before that, you may have been upon ignorance. And then only after learning the details of how to do Umrah, how to do Hajj, and then going and doing it, you then remove that ignorance from yourself. So now if a person thinks about this question, how much ignorance do we all have? How much ignorance do we all have yet? The answer is a lot. There are so many things, every one of us we do not know yet. So many, in Bukhari, how many hadith are there? Hundreds or thousands? Thousands. Do you know every one of them? Hundreds. Do you even know a hundred of them? Maybe some of us do not even know ten of them. So how much ignorance do we have? A lot. In Sahih Muslim, how many hadith are there? Hundreds or thousands? Thousands. How many of them do you know? In Sahih Muslim, authentic narrations. Before that, the Qur'an. How many of us know everything mentioned in the Qur'an, in the different chapters and what Allah says and the tafsir? How much ignorance is there? If somebody was to now open up a chapter of the Qur'an, and say to you, go ahead, read that chapter, with the English if you want, but then explain to me what this chapter means. It's the Qur'an, the speech of Allah. You're a believer, how can you not know what Allah has told you? You're a Muslim, this is your book, the Qur'an, how can you not know what is in it? And is it not the case that we have a lot of ignorance regarding the Qur'an? Chapters of the Qur'an, and we have no idea what they mean. Meaning, you could read them and you don't know these stories and you don't know these parts of the Qur'an and you don't understand them. Many, many parts of the Qur'an, many parts of the sunnah, of the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. We have a lot of ignorance amongst us, all of us, everybody. And we all strive bit by bit to start removing those pieces of ignorance away from ourselves. But there is a lot. And if a person thinks about how much there is, you would therefore realize, you would therefore realize 
how much effort and time is needed from you in seeking knowledge. You recognize how much ignorance we have. How are you going to remove that ignorance through seeking knowledge? And the level of ignorance we have is great. Compare even in our time now. Compare us to the likes of a Shaykh Al-Fawzan for example. Now, you think about the different parts of fiqh. Here a few years ago, we did Kitab salah from Bulugh Al-Maram, went through all of the hadith about the prayer. There is the chapter of purification before that, about wudu, about the type of water you can use to make wudu. Imagine in the books of fiqh, the first chapter they always mention is the chapter regarding purification. Wudu, ghusl, etc., tayammum. That's the first chapter. Why do they mention that as the first chapter? Not even prayer as the first chapter. Why? Because it's a prerequisite to the prayer. How are you going to pray if you don't know how to make purification? So now if a person thinks about how much we all know about purification, the rulings of wudu, the rulings of ghusl, for the women, the rulings of the menstrual blood or the postnatal bleeding, Rulings on these affairs, how much do we know? The water that you're allowed to use to make wudu. What type of water can you use? What liquid can you not use? What if you have some water but something falls in it? Is it impure now or can you still use it? Simple things they mention at the beginning in the books of fiqh. Do we know it? Then you go on to wudu and all the different rulings about wudu. All of the different ahadith about wudu. When you wash your nose and mouth, should you do your mouth and then your nose? Or should you do it all in one go? And should you get three separate cupfuls? Or just one cupful and use that for three times? So many narrations, do we know? Then you get to Kitab salah the chapter of prayer. And there are so many things to learn in the prayer. The conditions of the prayer. The conditions, the shurut salah Facing the qibla is one of the conditions of the prayer. But what if you're unable to work out where the qibla is? What are you going to do? Or you start praying and then you realize there's some impurity on your garment. Do you have to repeat it? So many things. Do we have answers to these? Do we have knowledge about all of this? And before you even carry on with the rest of the chapters in zakat and fasting and hajj, they are the common chapters. Then you go on after that, the chapter of garments, the Islamic rulings, 
on clothes. What you're allowed to wear, what you're not allowed to wear, which materials you're allowed to wear and you're not allowed to wear, which colors you're allowed to wear, not allowed to wear. Have any of us or some of us even heard of those things? Maybe we've never even heard there are certain types of materials or colors or types of garments we're not allowed to wear. There is so much to learn. And that's just in the chapters of fiqh. We haven't even mentioned before that aqidah. All of the different chapters of aqidah. Take a book like Kitab al-Tawheed. Kitab al-Tawheed, chapter by chapter, goes through all the various topics, emphasizing and explaining tawheed, and clarifying the opposite which is shirk. But do we know about those things? Somebody comes and asks you about the decree of Allah. Do we know and can we mention and do we understand what the principles of Ahl Sunnah are regarding the decree of Allah? The pillars of Iman that we were studying here before the COVID break. Iman in Allah. Iman in the angels. What do we know about the angels? What are they made of? How many are there? What are their jobs? What are their names? Do we know those details? The prophets and messengers, how many were there? What's the difference between a prophet and a messenger? The books and the revelations, are they all the speech of Allah? How many books and revelations were there? What are their names? The day of judgment and all of the events that will occur. The point being, we have yet, all of us, a lot of ignorance. And the seeking of knowledge is to remove that ignorance bit by bit. And this is the way of the salaf in knowledge, at tadarruj That you don't come along and say, I'm going to do... Fiqh, like we've been talking about now, fiqh. Somebody comes along and says, I'm going to do fiqh, and I'm going to begin with this big 20 volume book. But no, you begin step by step, the small knowledge building up to the larger knowledge. The key is, that every person selects carefully, the required and beneficial knowledge that you need. And the Prophet ﷺ used to make dua that, O oh Allah, grant me the al-ilm, al-nafi' the beneficial knowledge. Because you could go and learn the details and the ins and outs of certain worldly academic topics. And you would be removing ignorance from yourself. You could go and learn the details of geography, and coastal erosion, and urbanization, and all of the topics covered in geography, and you could learn that, and you would remove ignorance from yourself. You didn't know why houses at the edges of cliffs are falling off into the sea, and how corrosion occurs, and this and that. You have removed ignorance from yourself. But, has it been 
a beneficial removal of that ignorance. Meaning, was there any problem in being ignorant in those affairs? No. If a person doesn't know how coastal erosion occurs, for example, it doesn't harm you. A person doesn't know the ins and outs of urbanization and rural development and whatever the topics may be, it doesn't harm you. It's not going to affect you on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So that knowledge, the scholars have said, yes, you take from it what you need. People study. Some people study geography, some people study science, some people study pharmacy, maths, whatever it might be. Take from that knowledge what you require, but then ensure, make sure, that you're not just focusing on removing your ignorance on the topic of geography or maths, and at the same time, you are neglecting the fact that you have a huge amount of ignorance waiting to be removed regarding the religion. The religion is the priority. That's where you want to remove the ignorance, because removing that ignorance, it aids you in becoming closer to Allah. That is knowledge you are learning of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Knowledge of the religion. And the more you learn of that, like we said last time, the more your iman increases, the more you do your worship. That is something that brings you closer to Allah and improves your ability to worship Allah. Because every time you remove a piece of ignorance related to the religion, it means you now have a piece of extra knowledge about the religion you didn't before, which makes you better in your ability to worship Allah. If you look at the examples of the scholars like we mentioned last time, the example of a Sheikh al-Albani and his library door, etc. If you look at the example of a Sheikh bin Baz we've mentioned today. A Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, as you know, was blind. He was not born blind though. A Sheikh bin Baz, rahimahullah ta'ala, had his eyesight. And he only lost it at the age of approximately 19. 
And so in his younger days, before losing his eyesight, he used to make notes and he has handwriting, written notes on some of the books. He only lost his eyesight after a medical problem when he was approximately 19 or so. But look at the example of the sheikh. Lost his eyesight, most people would fall into depression. And that's it, finished, cannot seek knowledge, cannot do anything. And yet he persevered as so many other scholars did. Even after these types of trials overcame them, the trial of losing your eyesight at the age of 20. And yet he continued and persisted and persevered with seeking knowledge and look how Allah raised him, a mountain of knowledge of our time. And that is just examples from the scholars now. When you look at the scholars of old, the Salaf, and what they used to do for knowledge, I will briefly just mention a couple of their examples, so you can see how much effort they put into this, because they knew of the massive importance of seeking knowledge, and the great loss for a person who remains with all of that, Ignorance still there. There is an example of Jabir ibn Abdullah. Jabir ibn Abdullah, he traveled to Abdullah ibn Unais in Sham. And it took him a month to get there. Jabir ibn Abdullah traveled to Abdullah ibn Unais and it took him a month to get there. And imagine in those days in the deserts, traveling on your donkeys and camels in the heat, a month of traveling to get to Abdullah ibn Unais. And he did all of that journey, a month in the deserts on the donkeys and walking and camels, in the heat, all of that difficulty, a month traveling, for the sake of one hadith he needed to find out from Abdullah ibn Unais. One only. One single hadith he needed to find out. He traveled a month in those days, a month to get there, to find out that one hadith, and maybe Abdullah ibn Unais told him that one hadith, in maybe two minutes. A month of traveling for a two minute hadith. These days, it's not just one hadith, it's a whole lecture for an hour, and there are going to be lots of hadith, and lots of ayat, and you don't have to travel a month to get there, you barely have to travel five minutes in your car, even if you come from further out, nice and relaxed with the AC and everything else, and all the amenities, 50 minutes, an hour, two hours, two hours in a car, a month in the deserts and the heat and on the donkeys, for the sake of one hadith, not to go there to get lots of knowledge of him, one hadith, Look at the level of effort. Who would travel now? 
You say to a person, there's going to be a lesson all the way down in London, and the lesson is going to be two minutes long. There is not a single person from here who will travel for it. Ignore the communications and the radio links and tele, uh, the uh, live broadcast. Ignore, imagine all that gone. But if you had to travel there, that was the only way. Nobody would travel if they found out it's only going to be a two-minute lesson. Even if you told them it's going to be just a 20-minute lesson or just a 30-minute lesson. Nobody would travel all that distance for that. But they traveled. In another example, Abu Ayyub, in fact, the example of Uqba ibn Amr. There is an example of Uqba ibn Amr where when he was young, he was breastfed by a particular woman. And when he grew up, he married a woman who was also breastfed by the same woman when she was younger. So there was a wet nurse. A wet nurse had breastfed him. Uqba ibn al-Harith. Uqbah ibn al-Harith. There was a wet nurse who had breastfed him. And had breastfed another child, a girl, a baby female. When they grew up, they ended up marrying each other, not knowing that they had both been wet nursed by the same woman when they were young, when they were babies. So when that wet nurse discovered these two are now married, she came and told them, but, but when you were younger, both of you are used to uh, be the wet nurse for you. And we know that's impermissible, you cannot marry then. So she told them, when you were young, both of you, you didn't know, but you two, both of you were wet nursed by me. So it's mentioned that Uqba ibn al-Harith, he was in Mecca at the time, when this news came to him for the first time from the witness. It's mentioned in the narration, فَرَكِبَ مِنْ فَوْرِهِ As soon as that witness told him this news, he knew now he needs to go and find out the fatwa, needs to find out the Islamic ruling, what is he going to do, what's going to happen, what's the ruling now. Instantly, it says in the narration, immediately, he got on to his riding animal and went to Medina. Didn't say, okay, well, let's see then, maybe at the weekend, I'll work it out and I'll have to go to Medina to ask the Prophet. Instantly, that minute, arrange everything, get the animal and went. And when he got to Medina, then he asked the Prophet ﷺ about that. And the Prophet ﷺ of course informed him, كَيْفَ وَقَدْ قِيلَ But how can anything be said now? Already the revelation has come about that, that it's impermissible to do so. But the point being, the importance they gave to their worship, the importance they gave to knowledge, he was in this situation now, 
He needed the answer immediately. So he went immediately. Another example of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar ibn al-Khattab everybody knows. Radiallahu anhu. Look at how focused he was on seeking knowledge from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. There's a narration in al-Bukhari where he says, كُنْتُ أَنَا وَجَارٌ لِي مِنَ الْأَنصَارِ فِي بَنِي أُمَيَّ إِبْنُ زَيْدِ وَهِيَ مِنْ عَوَالِ الْمَدِينَةِ وَكُنَّ نَتَنَاوَبُ النُّزُولِ عَلَى رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم يَنْزِلُ يَوْمًا وَأَنْزِلُ يَوْمًا فَإِذَا نَزَلْتُ جِئْتُهُ بِخَبَرِ ذَلِكَ الْيَوْمِ وَإِذَا نَزَلَ فَعَلَ مِثْلَ ذَلِكَ He says that he, Umar ibn al-Khattab, and a neighbor of his, and both of them had farms, they had sheep. He had some sheep, his neighbor had some sheep. He said, myself and my neighbor, we used to take turns going to the Prophet ﷺ. Because they both couldn't go at the same time, who would look after all of the animals and the sheep. They couldn't just let them go. Somebody had to stay and graze them and look after them, and milk them and take care of the needs of the animals. So they both couldn't go at the same time when the Prophet ﷺ was teaching. So they made a plan. One day, Umar ibn al-Khattab would go and sit with the Prophet ﷺ and learn the knowledge. And that night he would come back and teach all of it to his neighbor. In the meantime, when he was gone, his neighbor was looking after all of the animals. The next day, the neighbor would go to the Prophet wasallam and learn all the knowledge, while Umar ibn al-Khattab stayed behind looking after everything. And then when the neighbor came back that night, he would then teach Umar ibn al-Khattab everything he had learned from the Prophet wasallam. That way, by taking turns every day, they could make sure they learned the knowledge from the Prophet on a daily basis. On a daily basis, they weren't missing anything by taking turns in that way. This is what the Salaf did. This is what they did. This is how they thought. It was all about the priority and the focus on the knowledge. Focused on making sure they could learn. And they would go and ask the Prophet ﷺ whenever any issues came up. Imagine when those sailors, there were some sailors on the ship, and they came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him a particular question. Imagine, when you make wudu, what do you make wudu with? Water. You make wudu with water. And sailors, when they go out on the sea, there is plenty of water everywhere. But the sailors, they came to the Prophet ﷺ to ask him, if it is permissible to make wudu with the ocean water. They came to ask the Prophet ﷺ, if it is permissible to make wudu with the ocean water. You might think, why? Why would they bother going to ask that question? Water, water. The sea, is it not water? It's all water. Why would they go and ask that question? Why make the effort and go to the Prophet ﷺ and ask him, can we make wudu with the ocean? It's water. 
Why? Because the difference between the normal water and the ocean water is the salt. Fresh water and salt water. So there's that one major difference. Fresh water and salt water. So they thought, Islamically, is there maybe a difference then? Maybe the fatwa is different, the ruling is different. Maybe salt water can't be used. So they did not take chances and just do whatever. They would come to the Prophet to find out details, to make sure they were worshipping Allah properly in everything. And so when they came and asked the Prophet ﷺ, he told them, هُوَ الطَّهُورُ مَاؤُهُ الْحِلُّ مَيْتَتُهُ The water of the sea, it is pure, purifying, you can use it. Sea water can be used to make wudu, to make ghusl. And the animals, the fish, that live exclusively in the sea, are permissible to eat even if they are dead. Normally an animal that's dead, if it's already dead, you come in the forest and you find a dead uh, uh, animal, a dead cow, a dead goat, a dead sheep, can you then slaughter it and say Allahu Akbar and now eat it? Cannot. It's already dead. It's a corpse. But the animals of the sea, the sea-dwelling animals, not a sheep if it falls into the sea, the, she- the, the fish of the sea, you can eat them. Even if you haven't done the sacrifice on them, the slaughtering on them. So the Prophet explained these rulings to them. But the point is, look at how much importance they gave to understanding the religion in detail and carefully. In detail, precisely, so they would worship Allah properly. This is something we have to focus on, because in these days, or generally, generally, throughout the history, the world drags the people away and distracts them and preoccupies them into other affairs that means you are not left with time to keep removing the ignorance that still remains. You get so busy with this and with that, and you leave no time to remove this ignorance, and it remains and sits there, and so you don't know how to do this worship or that worship properly. You don't know this sunnah or that sunnah properly. So it's something we must all think about carefully. Think about how much ignorance we have of the religion. How much? And if we realize how much ignorance we have, you will realize you do not have time to waste. You do not have time to waste on this or that, when all of this ignorance is still sitting there, waiting to be removed. It doesn't make sense for a person to waste his time and allow this ignorance to sit there and build up and not know how to worship Allah properly. Hence the focus has to be on that knowledge. Al-ilmu wal-amal, knowledge and action. That's what the believer revolves around. Knowledge of the religion and action. Like a tree with fruits. The tree is the knowledge and the fruits are the action upon that knowledge. But if you don't give time, then you will not have any tree, you will not have any fruits. You don't have the knowledge, how can you act upon the knowledge?
So do not allow the affairs that are secondary to distract you from what is primary. Imagine in these places, in the Marakis, it's only one lesson a week, maybe two lessons a week. Push it to maybe three lessons a week. Three hours of the week out of all of your week. You do 40 hours, 40 at your work, 30, 50, 60 some people. And you cannot put aside one hour or two hours fixed into your schedule to chip away at this ignorance every week. To keep removing it every week, bit by bit. It's a calamity if you cannot. So focus and think about these affairs. On the day of judgment, the accountability will be upon this. The level of knowledge you have will determine the level of actions you can do and how much and what, and how well and precise, and to go up into the levels of iman and ihsan. So everybody must think about this carefully, and focus on this knowledge, and like we said last time, not to be a Muslim just by name, but to be a Muslim in reality where you are learning and understanding. You know what is in the Qur'an and in all the chapters. You know what is in the sunnah. A Muslim in practice, not a Muslim just by name. So we'll have to round off on that. The prayer time is here. We'll conclude upon that for this time then and resume the next time insha'Allah ta'ala. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.